0: part three of optimism an essay by helen keller this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by michelle fry baton rouge louisiana part three the practice of optimism the test of all beliefs is in their practical effect in life if it be true that optimism compels the world forward and pessimism retards it then it is dangerous to propagate a pessimistic philosophy. One who believes that the pain in the world outweighs the joy and expresses that unhappy conviction only adds to the pain. Schopenhauer is an enemy to the race. Even if he earnestly believed that this is the most wretched of possible worlds, he should not promulgate a doctrine which robs men of the incentive to fight with circumstance if life gave him ashes for bread it was his fault life is a fair field and the right will prosper if we stand by our guns let pessimism once take hold of the mind and life is all topsy-turvy all vanity and vexation of spirit there is no cure for individual or social disorder except in forgetfulness and annihilation let us eat drink and be merry says the pessimist FOR TOMORROW WE DIE. IF I REGARDED MY LIFE FROM THE POINT OF VIEW OF THE PESSIMIST, I SHOULD BE UNDONE. I SHOULD SEEK IN VAIN FOR THE LIGHT THAT DOES NOT VISIT MY EYES AND THE MUSIC THAT DOES NOT RING IN MY EARS. I SHOULD BEG NIGHT AND DAY AND NEVER BE SATISFIED. I SHOULD SIT APART IN AWFUL SOLITUDE, A prey TO FEAR AND DESPAIR. BUT SINCE I CONSIDER IT A DUTY TO MYSELF AND TO OTHERS TO BE HAPPY, I ESCAPE A MISERY WORSE THAN ANY PHYSICAL DEPRIVATION. WHO SHALL DARE LET HIS INCAPACITY FOR HOPE AND GOODNESS CAST A SHADOW UPON THE COURAGE OF THOSE WHO BEAR THEIR BURDENS AS IF THEY WERE PRIVILEGES? THE OPTIMIST CANNOT FALL BACK, CANNOT FALTER, FOR HE KNOWS HIS NEIGHBOR WILL BE HINDERED BY HIS FAILURE TO KEEP IN LINE. He will therefore hold his place fearlessly and remember the duty of silence. Sufficient unto each heart is its own sorrow. He will take the iron claws of circumstance in his hand and use them as tools to break away the obstacles that block his path. He will work as if upon him alone depended the establishment of heaven on earth. We have seen that the world's philosophers, the sayers of the word, were optimists. So also are the men of action and achievement, the doers of the word. Dr. Howe found his way to Laura Bridgman's soul because he began with the belief that he could reach it. English jurists had said that the deaf blind were idiots in the eyes of the law. Behold what the optimist does. He controverts a hard legal axiom. He looks behind the dull impassive clay and sees a human soul in bondage and quietly, resolutely sets about its deliverance. His efforts are victorious. He creates intelligence out of idiocy and proves to the law that the deaf blind man is a responsible being. When Howie offered to teach the blind to read, he was met by pessimism that laughed at his folly. Had he not believed that the soul of man is mightier than the ignorance that fetters it, had he not been an optimist, he would not have turned the fingers of the blind into new instruments. No pessimist ever discovered the secrets of the stars, or sailed to an uncharted land, or opened a new heaven to the human spirit. St. Bernard was so deeply an optimist that he believed two hundred and fifty enlightened men could illuminate the darkness which overwhelmed the period of the Crusades, and the light of his faith broke like a new day upon Western Europe. John Bosco, the benefactor of the poor and the friendless of Italian cities, was another optimist, another prophet, who, perceiving a divine idea while it was yet afar, proclaimed it to his countrymen." although they laughed at his vision and called him a madman, yet he worked on patiently, and with the labor of his hands he maintained a home for little street waifs. In the fervor of enthusiasm he predicted the wonderful movement which should result from his work. Even in the days before he had money or patronage, he drew glowing pictures of the splendid system of schools and hospitals which should spread from one end of Italy to the other and he lived to see the organization of the san salvador society which was the embodiment of his prophetic optimism when dr sagan declared his opinion that the feeble-minded could be taught again people laughed and in their complacent wisdom said he was no better than an idiot himself But the noble optimist persevered, and by and by the reluctant pessimists saw that he whom they ridiculed had become one of the world's philanthropists. Thus the optimist believes, attempts, achieves. He stands always in the sunlight. Some day the wonderful, the inexpressible, arrives and shines upon him, and he is there to welcome it. His soul meets his own and beats a glad march to every new discovery every fresh victory over difficulties every addition to human knowledge and happiness we have found that our great philosophers and our great men of action are optimists so too our most potent men of letters have been optimists in their books and in their lives no pessimist ever won an audience commensurately wide with his genius and many optimistic writers have been read and admired out of all measure to their talents, simply because they wrote of the sunlit side of life. Dickens, Lamb, Goldsmith, Irving, all the well-beloved and gentle humorists were optimists. Swift, the pessimist, has never had as many readers as his towering genius should command and indeed when he comes down into our century and meets thackeray that generous optimist can hardly do him justice in spite of the latter-day notoriety of the Rubiat of omar khayyam we may set it down as a rule that he who would be heard must be a believer must have a fundamental optimism in his philosophy he may bluster and disagree and lament as Carlyle and Ruskin do sometimes, but a basic confidence in the good destiny of life and of the world must underlie his work. Shakespeare is the prince of optimists. His tragedies are a revelation of moral order. In Lear and Hamlet there is a looking forward to something better. Someone is left at the end of the play to right wrong, restore society, and build the state anew the later plays the tempest and cymbeline show a beautiful placid optimism which delights in reconciliations and reunions and which plans for the triumph of external as well as internal good if browning were less difficult to read he would surely be the dominant poet of this century i feel the ecstasy with which he exclaims "O oh, good gigantic smile of the brown old earth this autumn morning And how he sets my brain going, when he says, because there is imperfection, there must be perfection, completeness must come of incompleteness, failure is an evidence of triumph for the fullness of the days. Yes, discord is, that harmony may be, pain destroys, that health may renew. Perhaps I am deaf and blind, that others, likewise afflicted, may see and hear with a more perfect sense." From Browning I learned that there is no lost good, and that makes it easier for me to go at life, right or wrong, do the best I know, and fear not. My heart responds proudly to his exhortation to pay gladly life's debt of pain, darkness, and cold. Lift up your burdens, it is God's gift. Bear it nobly. The man of letters whose voice is to prevail must be an optimist and his voice often learns its message from his life. Stevenson's life has become a tradition only ten years after his death. He has taken his place among the heroes, the bravest man of letters since Johnson and Lamb. I remember an hour when I was discouraged and ready to falter. For days I had been pegging away at a task which refused to get itself accomplished. In the midst of my perplexity, I read an essay of Stevenson, which made me feel as if I had been outing in the sunshine, instead of losing heart over a difficult task. I tried again with new courage, and succeeded almost before I knew it. I have failed many times since, but I have never felt so disheartened as I did before that sturdy preacher gave me my lesson in the fashion of the smiling face. Read Schopenhauer and Omar, and you will grow to find the world as hollow as they find it. Read Green's History of England, and the world is peopled with heroes. I never knew why Green's history thrilled me with the vigor of romance until I read his biography. Then I learned how his quick imagination transfigured the hard, bare facts of life into new and living dreams. When he and his wife were too poor to have a fire, he would sit before the unlit hearth and pretend that it was ablaze. "'Drill your thoughts,' he said. "'Shut out the gloomy and call in the bright. There is more wisdom in shutting one's eyes than your copybook philosophers will allow.' Every optimist moves along with progress and hastens it, while every pessimist would keep the world at a standstill." The consequence of pessimism in the life of a nation is the same as in the life of an individual. Pessimism kills the instinct that urges man to struggle against poverty, ignorance, and crime, and dries up all the fountains of joy in the world. In imagination I leave the country which lifts up the manhood of the poor, and I visit India, the underworld of fatalism, where three hundred million human beings Scarcely men, submerged in ignorance and misery, precipitate themselves still deeper into the pit. Why are they thus? Because they have for thousands of years been the victims of their philosophy, which teaches them that men are as grass, and the grass fadeth, and there is no more greenness upon the earth. They sit in the shadow and let the circumstances they should master grip them until they cease to be men and are made to dance and salaam like puppets in a play. After a little hour, death comes and hurries them off to the grave, and other puppets with other pasteboard passions and desires take their place, and the show goes on for centuries. Go to India and see... WHAT SORT OF CIVILIZATION IS DEVELOPED WHEN A NATION LACKS FAITH IN PROGRESS AND BOWS TO THE GODS OF DARKNESS? UNDER THE INFLUENCE OF Brahmanism, GENIUS AND AMBITION HAVE BEEN SUPPRESSED. THERE IS NO ONE TO BEFRIEND THE POOR OR TO PROTECT THE FATHERLESS AND THE WIDOW. THE SICK LIE UNTENDED, THE BLIND KNOW NOT HOW TO SEE, NOR THE DEAF TO HEAR, AND THEY ARE LEFT BY THE ROADSIDE TO DIE. In India, it is a sin to teach the blind and the deaf, because their affliction is regarded as a punishment for offenses in a previous state of existence. If I had been born in the midst of these fatalistic doctrines, I should still be in the darkness, my life a desert land where no caravan of thought might pass between my spirit and the world beyond. The Hindus believe in endurance, but not in resistance, therefore they have been subdued by strangers their history is a repetition of that of babylon a nation from afar came with speed swiftly and none stumbled or slept or slumbered but they brought desolation upon the land and took the stay and the staff from the people the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water that mighty man and the man of war the judge and the prophet and the prudent and the ancient, and none deliver them. Woe indeed is the heritage of those who walk sad-thoughted and downcast through this radiant soul-delighting earth, blind to its beauty and deaf to its music, and of those who call evil good and good evil and put darkness for light and light for darkness. What care the weather-bronzed sons of the West feeding the world from the plains of Dakota for the Omars and the Brahmins? They would say to the Hindus, blot out your philosophy, dead for a thousand years. Look with fresh eyes at reality and life. Put away your Brahmins and your crooked gods and seek diligently for Vishnu, the preserver. Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope when our forefathers laid the foundation of the american commonwealths what nerved them to their task but a vision of a free community against the cold inhospitable sky across the wilderness white with snow where lurked the hidden savage gleamed the bow of promise toward which they set their faces with the faith that levels mountains fills up valleys bridges rivers and carries civilization to the uttermost parts of the earth although the pioneers could not build according to the hebraic ideal they saw yet they gave the pattern of all that is most enduring in our country today they brought to the wilderness the thinking mind the printed book the deep-rooted desire for self-government and the english common law that judges alike the king and the subject the law on which rests the whole structure of our society it is significant that the foundation of that law is optimistic in latin countries the court proceeds with a pessimistic bias the prisoner is held guilty until he is proved innocent in england and the united states there is an optimistic presumption that the accused is innocent until it is no longer possible to deny his guilt under our system it is said many criminals are acquitted But it is surely better so than that many innocent persons should suffer. The pessimist cries, There is no enduring good in man. The tendency of all things is through perpetual loss to chaos in the end. If there was ever an idea of good in things evil, it was impotent, and the world rushes on to ruin. But, behold, the law of the two most sober-minded, practical, and law-abiding nations on earth assumes the good in man and demands a proof of the bad. Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. The prophets of the world have been of good heart, or their standards would have stood naked in the field without a defender. Tolstoy's strictures lose power because they are pessimistic. If he had seen clearly the faults of America, and still believed in her capacity to overcome them, our people might have felt the stimulation of his censure. But the world turns its back on a hopeless prophet, and listens to Emerson, who takes into account the best qualities of the nation, and attacks only the vices which no one can defend or deny. It listens to the strong man, Lincoln, who, in times of doubt, trouble, and need, does not falter. He sees success afar, and by strenuous hope, by hoping against hope, inspires a nation. Through the night of despair, he says, all is well, and thousands rest in his confidence. When such a man censures and points to a fault, the nation obeys, And his words sink into the ears of men but to the lamentations of the habitual jeremiah the ear grows dull our newspapers should remember this the press is the pulpit of the modern world and on the preachers who fill it much depends if the protest of the press against unrighteous measures is to avail then for ninety-nine days the word of the preacher should be buoyant and of good cheer so that on the hundredth day the voice of censure may be a hundred times strong. This was Lincoln's way. He knew the people. He believed in them and rested his faith on the justice and wisdom of the great majority. When, in his rough and ready way, he said, You can't fool all the people all the time, he expressed a great principle, the doctrine of faith in human nature. The prophet is not without honor, save he be a pessimist. The ecstatic prophecies of Isaiah did far more to restore the exiles of Israel to their homes than the lamentations of Jeremiah did to deliver them from the hands of evildoers. Even on Christmas Day do men remember that Christ came as a prophet of good? His joyous optimism is like water to feverish lips, and has for its highest expression the eight beatitudes. It is because Christ is an optimist that for ages he has dominated the Western world. For 19 centuries, Christendom has gazed into his shining face and felt that all things work together for good. St. Paul, too, taught the faith, which looks beyond the hardest things, into the infinite horizon of heaven, where all limitations are lost in the light of perfect understanding. If you were born blind, search the treasures of darkness they are more precious than the gold of ophir they are love and goodness and truth and hope and their price is above rubies and sapphires jesus utters and paul proclaims a message of peace and a message of reason a belief in the idea not in things in love not in conquest the optimist is he who sees that men's actions are directed not by squadrons and armies but by moral power that the conquests of alexander and napoleon are less abiding than newton's and galileo's and st augustine's silent mastery of the world ideas are mightier than fire and sword Noiselessly they propagate themselves from land to land and mankind goes out and reaps the rich harvest and thanks God. But the achievements of the warrior are like his canvas city. Today a camp, tomorrow all struck and vanished, a few pit holes and heaps of straw. This was the gospel of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Christmas Day is the festival of optimism although there are still great evils which have not been subdued and the optimist is not blind to them yet he is full of hope despondency has no place in his creed for he believes in the imperishable righteousness of god and the dignity of man history records man's triumphant descent each halt in his progress has been but a pause before a mighty leap forward the time is not out of joint if indeed some of the temples we worshipped in have fallen we have built new ones on the sacred sites loftier and holier than those which have crumbled if we have lost some of the heroic physical qualities of our ancestors we have replaced them with the spiritual nobleness that turns aside wrath and binds up the wounds of the vanquished all the past attainments of man are ours and more his daydreams have become our clear realities therein lies our hope and sure faith as i stand in the sunshine of a sincere and earnest optimism my imagination paints yet more glorious triumphs on the cloud curtain of the future out of the fierce struggle and turmoil of contending systems and powers i see a brighter spiritual era slowly emerge An era in which there shall be no england no france no germany no america no this people or that but one family the human race one law peace one need harmony one means labor one taskmaster god if i should try to say anew the creed of the optimist i should say something like this i believe in god i believe in man I believe in the power of the Spirit. I believe it is a sacred duty to encourage ourselves and others to hold the tongue from any unhappy word against God's world, because no man has any right to complain of a universe which God made good and which thousands of men have striven to keep good. I believe we should so act that we may draw nearer and more near the age when no man shall live at his ease while another suffers. These are the articles of my faith, and there is yet another on which all depends to bear this faith above every tempest which overfloods it, and to make it a principle in disaster and through affliction. Optimism is the harmony between man's spirit and the spirit of God, pronouncing his works good. End of Optimism An Essay by Helen Keller.